Scarlett, thanks so much for joining us on the Dark Mode podcast. Thanks for having me. I'd like to introduce you before we kick into it, so if I may. Scarlett is the Head of Ecosystem Capability at Tech Council Australia. We're on a mission to shape Australia's digital future by bringing together Australia's most successful and innovative technology companies. Scarlett is also formerly the Chief Technology Officer of With You With Me. Pleasure to have you on the show today. Very excited to kick into all sorts of conversations, Scarlett. But to kick off, could you tell us a little bit about your role as Head of Ecosystems Capability at Tech Council Australia? Absolutely. So firstly, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here talking with other cyber people. My role at Head of Ecosystem Capability can be a bit of a mouthful, but basically at the Tech Council, we've got these great capabilities in research, policy and advocacy, and my role is new to the organization. So I've come in to take some of that great work that we're doing and turn that into tangible changes in the tech ecosystem. And you can think of ecosystem as sort of all of the things that are existing around tech companies that help us to succeed. So anything that needs to go in, like talent and investment, and then all the things that we then produce and we want to export globally and we want customers to adopt here in Australia. Uh, and one of the key parts of that is leading our digital employment forum as well, which is where we bring together indirect tech companies who want to make changes in the talent landscape here in Australia. Amazing. I mean, I'm a very, huge fan. Very important of- piece. Yeah. Big fan of ecosystems. I feel like you'd have an amazing perspective on the entire tech landscape in Australia. So can you tell a little bit more about the Digital Employment Forum though? What is that all about? Yeah, thanks. It's a really exciting initiative. So TCA's members, the Tech Council's members are mostly direct tech companies. So that's organizations that have something technical as the core product they produce. So cybersecurity, quantum, those kinds of things, all the way from software through to deep tech. But indirect tech companies are actually some of the largest tech employers in Australia. So organizations like Coles, Commonwealth Bank, West Farmers, that's where the majority of people in tech uh, jobs are actually employed, but they're not sort of our core membership. So we've created the Digital Employment Forum to bring those big organizations together and to connect them with the direct tech part of our ecosystem as well. I wouldn't have expected that. That's new to me. So I appreciate that. Well, you mentioned the, the ecosystems played before. Is that ecosystems in terms of technology ecosystems or those indirect versus direct? Where's your focus currently and how has it been shaping a new role into a pre-existing organization? Yeah, it's been really interesting coming from a direct tech role. So my last role as chief technology officer was a really different lens on the technology industry. Obviously being in the thick of it, trying to produce something, trying to get access to that talent. To then move into a role where looking at sort of the whole ecosystem that exists in Australia. So that's direct and indirect tech companies. But again, all of those inputting factors of how do we get policy settings right to attract investment into Australian tech companies? How do we help Australian tech companies export globally? How do we make sure that we've got that balance internally of talent we need to get access to and capital that we need to get access to? So that's been sort of really eye-opening to kind of put together some of the pieces that I had as a technical person to bring that into sort of a policy type lens and be working with some great policy people here at Tech Council. And in terms of shaping a new role, I think that's always really a treat. It's pretty exciting to be able to bring the unique perspectives. And I think this will, you know, play into the conversation a bit later around diverse thinking and, you know, sort of bringing a technology lens to policy problems. Nice one. I'm really interested to know how we're sort of stacking up. Like what is the state of tech skills and incubation around early startups? What does the landscape look like in Australia at the moment, Scarlett? Yeah, I mean, it's a big question, right? There's yeah. what's going on. <laughs> where do we but start? 
<laughs> the headline version is that Australia performs really well. So we perform, we outsize our GDP contribution globally with the number of really high value tech companies we create, which is really exciting. But I think there's always more to do in terms of how we can foster people to see technology as a career option for them. And then there's a fraction of those people that see technology as a career option and they get those technology skills. And that kind of collides with something that they've experienced in their life, like a problem that they've experienced. Maybe that's something in agriculture and then bam, that's how you get an ag tech company. So, you know, there's more for us to do in terms of bringing more people into technology and being able to touch and feel that and apply it to their own problems and make sure we've got those policy settings right for those people to be easily able to turn that into an organization that can continue to grow. But in general, things are good. We've got work to do, particularly in talent. But in general, Australia is a great place to start a tech company. And the tech industry here has you know, a $167 billion a year contribution to the Australian economy. So it's a really important part of what we do. Way too many numbers for my maths, Scarlett. <laughs> so I can, see you can, I can see you gearing up, Ben. You're like, you're ready oh, to yeah, to, yeah, I'm ready. Like... <laughs> I'm taking notes and everything. I don't know where to go first. I, so for the audience, I've had three double espressos today. I was telling Scarlett and Gay before that I'm seeing things in quantum time. So forgive me if you don't need to slow this speed down when I talk today. You mentioned talent pool. We've got such a great talent pool here in Australia and New Zealand across APAC, but focus on Australia. Is it just that the talent pool is so thin and we need to grow more resources into that talent pool? Or is the talent pool consumed by overseas tech? and not expanded into sovereignty? There's a bit of both there. So we sort of look at the whole technology talent funnel and, you know, it starts right at the beginning. We're not getting enough people into that funnel right at the start. And the research really shows if you want to reach people in diverse groups and help them to see technology as a career, you actually need to start that process in preschool. So that's, that's kind of a long way to backtrack if we're not getting it right. Um, and I think you can see in the numbers around particularly the representation of women in technology and Indigenous people in technology that we're not always getting that right. And then as we come through schooling, there's a bit of a drop-off there. And by high school, you've got people who've decided whether or not they're going to look at a technology career. So we need to continue to support people throughout that process. And then once we get into sort of that university phase, we've got to do a bit better in how we retain talent that's gone through university or through that education, we're actually not seeing a really strong link between getting that education and getting a tech job. So we've got some work to do there as well. And particularly one area I think we can do better in is reskilling talent. So as the workforce changes, you know, we hear a lot about the workforce of the future and we hear a lot about the impact of automation. As that workforce changes, we do need to have good avenues to reskill people back into technology jobs from other careers. And it's got so many advantages. So there's obviously like the economic advantage to individuals and their families, but also to the broader economy. And then we've got that diversity of thought that is really strong in people who've reskilled because they bring their professional background and they see things from a really different, like a really different angle. So a good example of this might be if call centers are something that's looking at being automated, there's a lot of great talent in there who know the companies that they're working for, they know their customers really well. Reskilling those kinds of people into technology roles is a huge boon for the tech industry. So I think, you know, there's a lot of different steps along that journey that we can be doing a bit better to boost the talent development that we have here in Australia. But as you rightly pointed out, Ben, the people who get into the tech industry in Australia are world-class. 
and we've really got a lot of innovation that happens here. And so while we do lose some of them overseas, I think a lot of them do end up coming back here, but there's more we can do as well to attract people back home. Is there like a pathways nuance there, Scarlett, as you spoke about going way back to early education and then into, you know, that tech career pathways? Is there something to be done in terms of the continuity for that individual's life cycle career-wise? Or why is there a bit of a drop-off that you're noticing in terms of that trend line? Yeah, I think there's, there's quite a few reasons. There's one initiative that we're currently undertaking with the Digital Employment Forum that's looking specifically at that part in high school and the transition to then make that decision to go into tech, whether that's going through a, like a further education pathway or directly into technology. And for us, that's virtual work experience. So we'll be rolling that out later in this year to all secondary students in Australia as a free program. But at that sort of point in the funnel, it's about building up awareness. You know, we're kind of steeped in it all the time, right? Here in tech, we know who Atlassian is. We know about Canva. But actually, if you ask young people in Australia, they don't know about those companies and if they don't necessarily know that they're homegrown. So it's about making sure people know actually what kind of crazy things we build here and that it's really achievable to go into that pathway and mapping those pathways out. That's really important. Great. Yeah, I just want to talk about just like the transferability of skills too and, you know, pivoting talent in, into tech roles. Ben's actually the poster boy for With You With Me. I'm not too sure if you know. He's a bit of a product of the program, aren't you, Ben? So. Went to believe so. <laughs> yeah. But we're pretty familiar with the crew over at With You With Me, actually, which is awesome and big fans of their work. We've spoken about them and the product, I suppose, on the Dark Mode podcast a few times, but you would have seen that firsthand being the CTO there. For the audience that might be unaware, would you like to just explain who With You With Me is and give us a little bit of insight into what you experienced during your time there? Yeah, absolutely. With You With Me, the great Australian success story. So it's a tech company based in Sydney and they've got a product and essentially what they're doing is looking at how we can bring people from diverse backgrounds into technology. And now that started with veterans. It's a veteran founded company, but they're really expanded these days to look at all kinds of different groups that are marginalized from technology careers. And the whole kind of backbone of that process is understanding somebody's aptitude and their personality and matching them to a role that will help them succeed. And so there's a lot that plays into the broader tech industry from that product. It's a great example of how we can understand what skills somebody has and what's the gap between where they are now and where they want to go and being able to actually fill in that gap rather than saying, okay, you didn't do tech to start with, so you're kind of, you're, you're out of it now and we're only going to bring in graduates. It's taking a really different approach to saying, actually, tech can be for anyone. And not just tech, you know, you could take your career wherever you want it to go. It's just understanding where you are now, where you want to be, and making sure we're matching people in a way that will help them succeed. Ben Scarlett did say personality, but yeah. I'm not too sure how, you, drop off how you got through it. Got to have a personality. Is yeah, I'm not too sure. <laughs> been looking for one for years. If anyone's got a spare, send it my way. That's what I love about tech is that we could be the hub for reskilling. We see it every day, you know, going through the hiring process in my day role. It's about thinking differently. It's about how can we bring in new talent, new lens into what is such a broad landscape of people in the industry. And I say tech is the, you know, the, the broader industry, but cyber is a, as a nuance to that. I find it really empowering to help push that agenda of looking towards reskilling 
and I don't say that in a flex capability. I say that in a, I'm proud of the whole industry for looking differently at how we fire and really taking the predated or the outdated process of hiring and shifting that completely to looking at the different lenses that come in with hiring different pe- people differently and reskilling. Yeah, it's been a really interesting time in tech for hiring. And I think in some ways that necessity is the mother of invention. And we've had a really tight talent market in technology for a long time, particularly through COVID. And we saw that, you know, in great churn rates and rising salaries and things like that. But it has meant that particularly for areas like cyber, we've really had to go outside of the norm. Because mathematically, if we're only hiring university graduates, there simply aren't enough of them to fill the roles. So it's a really great opportunity to kind of make good use of a crisis, which is what I like to do with a crisis, to branch out a little bit, let more people into the tent and to really benefit from the diversity that that brings. And obviously, we know that creates higher performing organizations and better quality products. We heard so many people say that never pass up a good pandemic or a good problem. I do the opposite. I tend to buy high, sell low. So I'm stay out of that conversation. <laughs> <sure>. <laughs> oh my God, that's another episode, Ben. <laughs> I'm interested to know, Scarlett, from your perspective, like if you look at the, just like the wider hiring lens or education systems in Australia, um, there's like a lot of technological disruption. We're all very privy to that working in the industry, but as it relates to um, just fundamental skill sets required to be future ready for future proofing your career, you know, are there things from your perspective that we should be doing or rallying towards now, particularly for organizations looking to hire from diverse backgrounds or retrain people? And then as a follow-up, have you got any views for individuals about being future ready? Absolutely. Yeah. So if we start from sort of the organizational view, one opportunity we have in reforming the vet sector in Australia and the higher education sector is creating a system that links the skills that industry needs to the training outcomes. That's been a real missing link in Australia, but also globally. There's not a really good feedback loop that says this is what a cybersecurity analyst is, and this is how they should be trained, and this is what the skill set looks like uh, for industry to then feed that back to education, to feed graduates back into industry. So we have an opportunity now to do something really unique and to build a system that will mean that we don't end up here again in 10 years being like, oh, well, no one has the skills to do the thing. And we know that the technological change is just speeding up with things like generative language models and that will continue to impact the workforce. So those flexible systems are really important. And then if we look at the individual organization, it's understanding what are the skills that you really need somebody to have and what can you train them in? So if you look for someone who's got 100% perfect skill set according to your job description every time, you're going to have a really high churn rate because probably people are going to get there and be bored because they already know how to do the job. So you need to be looking for people who you can train, kind of take on that role and to really own it. And you do that by investing in people and by helping them to to fill out that skill set. So understand what you need, understand what's non-negotiable for somebody to already have, and then know how to fill that gap in the middle. And I guess then if we come to the individual, it's partly knowing your own skill set. So, you know, even just writing down, not just what were your previous jobs, what are the things that you did in those jobs? You know, you might have organized projects and maybe you weren't a project manager, but actually you have a lot of the skills that go into that sort of a role. So if you were to look to move into a project management role, you know, do some research on the skill profiles for that. And you might find that you actually tick off, you know, 70 or 80% of those skills just based on the experience that you've had before. 
So the gap isn't always as big as you think. Um, and I think it would be remiss of me not to say automation is a thing that's coming, you know, and in many cases has already arrived. But I would just say to individuals not to be scared of that. In many cases, automation is not going to take jobs away, but it is going to augment your role. So understand what parts of your role can be done with automation tools. So, you know, we didn't run out of accountants when someone invented the calculator, you know, but we also didn't have accountants then writing things down with pen and paper for hours and hours and hours. They're able to do something else with their time. So try to identify what part of your job could be done by a computer and what would you do with the rest of the time? Because that's what's going to make you competitive in the market. Big shout out to my accountant, Nick, who is a walking calculator. Appreciate you. (laughs) Well, Scarlett also mentioned, write down all the things you achieved in your previous role. And I immediately thought I tolerated Ben Sullivan. So it does make me highly employable. (laughs) You know what? I think people underrate that stuff in their personal life. Like my level of negotiation (laughs) has skyrocketed since my children learned how to talk. (laughs) (laughs) Very true. (laughs) Yeah. Your, Your adaptability, Ben, with the baby dragons coming in. You know, mid QBR. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, that is absolutely right. My negotiation <laughs> tactics. I could be an FBI negotiator in a heartbeat. I qualify for that role pretty quickly. <laughs> Too good. What's are there any other factors there in terms of your outlook on the Australian sort of tech job landscape and how we can build more pipeline or better talent pipelines and help people sort of navigate those shifts in the future? Yeah, I think there's a big role to play in our organizations and making sure that, you know, we're acknowledging the kind of talent restraints that we have, you know, and even though we have seen some softening in the job market, there's still a lot of demand in those indirect tech companies and we're seeing some movement between tech and indirect tech. So I wouldn't be concerned about tech jobs, the demand dropping off. We've still got that talent shortage and there's still a pinch there. But what I would say is that, you know, we've got also playing our organizations in HR, particularly, we can't keep doing things like gatekeeping and saying you need to have three degrees and five years of experience. And particularly, we can't fall into these kinds of traps where we're saying, oh, we need five years of experience in this framework that's only existed for two years. And that's really symptomatic of a disconnect between our technical teams and our HR teams. If we're actually identifying what is the core thing that we need, we're not hiring people who are overskilled for our roles and we're not blocking out people that we perceive to be underskilled who actually are not underskilled. That will really resolve a lot of our issues and sort of rebalance that talent market. What did you say before in terms of how do we have such a big disconnect or gap in terms of the skills and the training outcomes at the moment? Where did we go? Where did we go right there? Yeah, I think it is an interesting one because it's sort of, these systems that we have in education and in hiring, they suffer some, from similar problems. It sort of builds up organically over time. And some of the issues that we can see now, the sort of systemic equality issues that are coming out of them, you know, where we're not necessarily graduating many women in technology or those women aren't going into technology roles. That's a result of systems that we didn't actively design. You know, they sort of just grew up over time. And we have the opportunity now to go back and say, we're going to intentionally design a system that meets the demands both of the individual and of the organizations that need to educate those people and employ those people and make sure that we're designing it inclusively from the outset. So to answer the question, I would say, you know, it's that organic buildup of non-designed systems that is really causing us pain. Yeah, it's almost the result of 
what are we, Ben, what were we saying on previous episodes, like the unintended consequences of things, like even talking big trends around captology and how, you know, computers or software is designed. It's like there's a lot of unintended consequences that come with that from a moral standpoint or outcomes based. But yeah, certainly we have the opportunity now, it seems to really actively design something. So how do, how do we reform it now is like the, the big, the big question really. Yeah, happily, we've seen the federal government come to the table on that with the Jobs and Skills Summit that they held last year, and we've got some different processes that are happening now looking into university reform and debt reform, and, um, you know, industry is really backing that, and that's um, our Digital Employment Forum is a good example of industry coming together to to get ready for those changes. Scarlett, you mentioned earlier that this typically begins at preschool to follow through into a tech career. And you also mentioned that there is virtual work experience being conducted by Tech Council of Australia. Gabe's not anxious, smiling because I took notes. <laughs> Firstly, I've got to apologize to my children who are already in grade five and grade three because they they didn't get that at preschool. But that sounds like a great gateway to what we need to, as in, it sounds like a great foundation to what we need to in place in education to really graft what we're trying to achieve here. And we can really target you know, female and inclusivity and and all of these different expansions of what we're trying to achieve for a more rounded and wholesome ecosystem. Is is that by definition or by design that that what the Tech Council of Australia is trying to do with this uh, virtual work experience programs? Because I just see so much value in the education system, getting that reform to educate early and to give them the experiences that we are seeing in industry. Yeah, definitely. So the Tech Council has got a goal of 1.2 million jobs in tech by 2030. And that's the reason that we're right now focused on that high school through further education, through employment kind of section, because that's sort of what we can influence by 2030. Obviously, if we go all the way back to preschool, that's a pretty long lead time for impacting the actual employment outcomes in 2030. So all of those different parts of the pipeline are, are really important. You can't exclude one and think that you can just make it up in high school. But we can have an influence there now, but it is a more complete influence if we start in preschool. I think it's really important that all throughout that pipeline from really, really young all the way through to making career decisions, that we're representing what can a career in technology look like, you know, so we don't have everyone thinking that technology is just a bunch of guys in hoodies tapping away at keyboards in basements. But you have you have young women who perhaps can see we've got, yes, you can you know, you can be a software developer and you can be working on a computer all the time, but you might also be a product manager who's out there talking to people and understanding how they use technology and influencing the way that technology then influences our lives. I'm holding out for people who are bringing their really unique perspectives into, particularly as technology continues to go down this pathway with things like AI that's making a lot of augmented decisions on behalf of people making sure that a diverse group of people are represented in the design process of that, you know, it's really critical and particularly those ways that technology is going to continue to implement, um, you know, in ways that interact with our physical life. So I think one of my favorite examples and one of the reasons why I became so interested in diversity and technology is these sort of facial recognition technologies way back when these mirrors that sort of augmented reality mirrors that you can kind of look in while you get ready in the morning. They hit the market, you know, maybe a decade ago, and they had fantastic recognition rates of white males. And they had you know, okay recognition rates of people of color who were men. And when you looked at people of color who were women, 
the recognition rates just fell off a cliff. There's nobody involved in the design process of those types of products at that time fit that profile at all. So that's a really tangible way that it can impact us. But you know, you'll see those examples play out anywhere you don't have a diverse team testing a product. That is the result you're going to get. Crazy. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's a mind-blowing use case, that one. I'm interested in the digital natives that are going through the education process now. And I use digital natives as, as a, a very strategic way of naming them and that, that era. But they've had technology as an enabler for their education journey since the early days, preschool. My children have their education journey started with iPads, smart whiteboards, Teams calls. You know, they, they are by definition digital natives. I wonder if that trend will change in, you know, as you mentioned, of, of going into high school, going into higher education, and then not choosing a techni technical outcome for employment. I wonder if these digital natives will embrace that to then move into more tech-related roles or whether it will just be an enabling element again to achieve higher success in other industry. It's a really interesting point that you raised then. Our kids now, yeah, they are surrounded by technology, right? They can use an iPad. Like no one has to teach them how to do that. They just know how to unlock that thing. But I think it's an important note that they're also used to growing up with technology that just works. You know, they're not having to pull these things apart. They're not necessarily having to build PCs and install software really manually and understand how the file directory works. And we do see that play out now as these people are joining the workforce, that they're really fast to pick up applications that just work and are ready to use, but they don't necessarily have a higher level of skill when it comes to the technical underside of that. So troubleshooting things. There's sort of less of a fear of breaking things than maybe our parents would have had, but we can't just in, just rely on the fact that our children grew up using applications and seeing technology in their life to say that they actually understand which bits of that are technology driven and how they actually work. So we really need to continue to drive that curiosity, you know, and take things apart and see how the hardware parts actually work. You know, how is software actually functioning? How is the computer making this decision for me? It's really important that we continue to prompt those conversations. Yeah, you've spoken to a, a number of schools recently. Do, how does that resonate with the students that you've spoken to or, or the, the leaders at those schools? I don't know if I've ever directly asked them anything of, of that nature, but I can certainly see there's just no patience for it. Like, you know, there, there would be no patience to troubleshooting anything because we, I think there's also like that attention you know, a couple of seconds worth, you want to be enthralled in what you're using or what you're seeing. It's very much the speeds and feeds on all the social media threads and the like, depending on the age demographic. But maybe just that fundamental sort of technical underbelly recognition of how things work is not necessarily there because, you know, modern day tech and particularly software is very much instantaneous. It's very user-friendly. It's been engineered and designed in a way where it is absolutely captivating and keeps you, keeps you in your attention in. So in some ways, got, we've actually done too well with building yeah. technology. Yeah, exactly. So, that, I mean, that's what comes to mind for me. Yeah, I think it's an interesting place, you know. I have a really clear memory of learning how to solder with my dad at the kitchen bench when I was like, you know, seven, because he's an electrical engineer and that was just something that was in my life. You know, technology was around me. It was really tangible and I could see it. And we always, you know, we always had the computer and that kind of thing. There are ways that we can do that for young people now. So home automation is a really cool way to do that because you can start really simple, drag and drop, or you can get a bit more in depth 
but it's a way that you can really see technology responding to you in your own home. There are ways we can do it, but we, again, we just can't take for granted that kids will magically, you know, jump into technology careers because it's around them. What are you laughing at there, Ben? The home automation. Got another in. story for you. This, this one will probably hit the shorts as well, but my youngest daughter loves a like, good old YouTube just scrolling. And she had come, and I know this after the event, so I'll tell you the background before I get to the event. She told me that she found interest in forensics, like kid forensics on YouTube. And I thought that was really cool because that was a past life of mine as well. And uh, the reason why I found this out was we have a home automation system in here where we can turn the pool lights on and change the colors and downstairs, upstairs, everything's sort of home automated. The speakers around the house are the garage door, for instance, and she finds it really, she calls it, the word she uses is satisfying when she can button on the phone and see an immediate cause and effect. So she can correlate the cause and effect there. Anyway, it's passcode protected for exactly that reason. So I don't get home and the house looks like a disco with the, the garage door going up and down. So she'd watched this forensic video and had dusted my phone with talcum powder to try and catch me out for the passcode. She had dusted the phone and she was looking at it. So what are you doing? She's like, oh, I watched this video and I can get your passcode just by seeing the fingerprints. She's eight. It's like, God. Yep. There's always a story. There's a periodically on dark mode. There's a story about your yeah one of your daughters. So I, I guess which one it is. Yeah, absolutely, good. yeah, yeah. That's but great. yeah, that's what I've got to put up with. But yeah, the home automation piece for them is is really fascinating that they can see an immediate cause and effects, and I love that they link that together. And they're you know, they're asking me things like, why can't we home automate my fan or my blinds? That was the big one I had. So now we're we're going down the lesson of. This is what we need to make your manual blinds home automated. Now, I want you to go and find what product you can see on the internet to see if there is something that we could potentially install and then hook up to the home automation system. So it is. That's a really important part of that process where you go, okay, now it should be really simple. We're just going to do like one line of code and it's going to work. And then six hours later, you're going to be like down this YouTube rabbit hole. Like, why won't my blinds work? Yes. <laughs> and then yeah. the the common technologist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly. We've just solved for it right there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Real life experimentation. <laughs> that's Absolutely. my day. That's my day. Well, it's my weekend next weekend. I have no doubt she's found products for that. So, yeah, we'll see. Scar- Scarlett, have you got any other thoughts on like the power of diversity? in not only tech, but, you know, soft skills like problem solving or how it relates to workforce outcomes. Definitely. Yeah. This is one of the the major advantages going down that reskilling pathway. We've got a lot of advantages with young people coming in. That's great. It's really important that we, you know, take the time to train people. But when you bring someone across from a previous career or even from time out of the workforce, those soft skills that they've garnered throughout their life experience are just so important. So, you know, things like being able to communicate that teamwork element, being able to, you know, to communicate well to the external stakeholders, what it is that you're doing and why it's actually important. And often when you have people come in with a different perspective, they're going to ask you, okay, why is this important? Or some of those really fundamental questions. And sometimes in technology, we can get a bit down the rabbit hole of the how, and it does help to have people to pull you back up to the why. Are we doing this and why are we doing it this way? So I think just having challenging viewpoints in your own team is a huge benefit. And the data does really back that up. You know, there's good statistics now around diverse teams in companies having higher performing revenue outcomes and things like that. 
and you know the Diversity Council of Australia is a good place to check out with some Australian versions of that data. But I think you know at this point we're past the theoretical of like is it a good idea to have diverse teams? It's absolutely no brainer. I think it's beyond no, but I think it's just it is it is absolutely a requirement for new business and existing business to have that uh, that diverse thinking. Yeah, you're right, Ben. You're right. It's it is a step further. It is a requirement. How much of a proponent I think all of us on this call are about how critical it is not only to have, but how much more empowering it is for the business or for the team when you do have diverse thinking. And we oftentimes think immediately in terms of diversity, whether that's like by gender or racial and the like, but I think just as importantly, it's like that diversity of thought, which you mentioned before, Scarlett, and even like neurodivergent thinkers and you know, all sorts of realms across that sort of spectrum of diversity is really important. And I think if we were to see just like a big data visualization or a big super matrix as to like where those diverse thoughts or psychometric traits really help point into certain areas of strength, you can get a really blended, like healthy view of how it does contribute to the whole and to that team environment and then therefore the organization. It's just a really interesting thing. And I'm glad that we're talking about it a lot more in this day and day day and age, because it certainly wasn't as prominent 50 years ago, that's for sure. 10 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's scary that we're in 2023. I had to look at the calendar. Why did I have to look at the calendar to see what year it is? It's scary to think that we're in 2023 and you know, 10, 15 years ago, these conversations are only just starting. We're really yeah. starting with actionable. Really. Uh, yeah. 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 I think we've got further to go, but. I think even just calling it out like you had there, Gabe, you know, it's cognitive diversity and there's a lot of these kind of what we might call top-level diversity metrics that we look at a lot and rightly so, so things like gender and racial background and cultural background, you know, those are ways to supercharge cognitive diversity. But if you have two people who have really similar demographics on paper in a room, they might have really different cognitive diversity. Somebody might be neurodivergent or even just personality traits are different. Somebody might be much more conscientious or much more neurotic. And there's a place for all of these people in the workforce. It's it's our responsibility really to make sure that our teams have a really good makeup where we can complement each other and we're not sort of getting that echo chamber effect of having the same personalities bouncing off each other. Well, have you got anything to say about like I'm, I noticed that there was kind of like three key areas for Tech Council Australia around, you know, the growth of the tech sector, talent attraction, and then regulatory settings. Pretty keen to hear from your perspective what those regulatory settings look like for a tech-enabled economy. Yeah, it's a really important point around sort of that public-private partnership that we really need both sides of that working together to get a really good growth outcome. And, you know, I think so much of our economy is enabled by tech now, so the digital economy, but even just, you know, the fact that there's hardly a business in Australia. I think you'd be hard pressed to find even one that's not using some kind of technology to either run their business back end or to actually perform their function. There's a whole range of regulatory settings that apply to that. Really anything that applies to business and anything that applies to technology at all can intersect with this. But there are some really important ones around cyber is a great example, but we need to see that private public partnership to have success there. So what we'd like to see is sort of a national cyber plan that's backed both by government and by industry to reach those milestones that we need to see and make sure that those things aren't just Australian focused, that we're actually making sure we're looking at international compatibility of regulation, 
that's going to be really important in privacy reform that we've obviously that is underway with the government. You know, we need to be able to integrate with programs like GDPR that Australian companies are held to when we do export. So how can we make sure that we're meeting a really high standard for Australian citizens and consumers, but we're not putting an undue load on business that's going to make it really difficult to innovate and to continue to export great Australian products? Nice one. I would love to challenge Ben to say private-public partnership as fast as possible five times. Please, Ben. Five times. It. Private-public. Can't even say one. Private-public <laughs> partnership. Private-public partnership. That's a tongue twister. That needs to be added to the book. Yeah. <laughs> Nearly there. Scarlett, how did you find, just on private-public partnerships, how did you find our Threat Intelligence Roundtable the other week? I thought it was fantastic. You know, it was really interesting to get that global perspective as well that Palo Alto is able to bring. And your speaker there was obviously deeply knowledgeable about those impacts globally, but also in Australia. And with cyber, something that always fascinates me, having been in a military family, um, is sort of the impact of geopolitics on the digital economy. And you yeah. really can't separate the two. It's fascinating. You cannot, hey. It's just so interesting. And a speaker like Pete, he just you could just listen to him for hours. And the most amazing thing is he could actually just keep speaking about the threat landscape for hours. <laughs> like without That's a breath. Right. Yeah. And, you know, to come back to, to policy, you know, because everyone loves to talk about policy. Um, <laughs> it's really interesting to hear, you know, what is not working overseas, you know, and what measures could be put in place that possibly wouldn't be effective and making sure we're not kind of falling into that trap and just wasting a bunch of time putting in place bunch of processes that aren't actually going to solve the problem that they set out to. So for me, that was really great. Yeah, nice. Well, I thought, you know, cyber is a really good example where you do have to take that as a global cooperation to, to the response because threat actors don't have geographic barriers. And because of the interconnectedness around the digital landscape, it's really critical to think about those that type of ecosystem, if we say. And then I also thought in the most recent example, it was really interesting having spent three hours of my weekend studying the testimony with the U.S. Senate with, with OpenAI, Sam Altman, and head of the chief privacy officer of IBM, and one of the academics there speaking about a call to regulate AI was also really interesting. And again, doesn't have the barriers, but it also talks to regulatory settings, governance, the role of government, and how we actually cooperate really collectively in defense of that or to safeguard or bring those guardrails in place. So thought it's a really interesting time and cyber and AI is absolutely at the forefront of these conversations. You're so right. And again, you can't shy away from the international landscape there. Obviously, we've got close partners like the UK and the US, and we've got some obligation to be linked into what they're doing. But you know, we have also other nations like India saying outright that they're not going to regulate AI. And you know, they're in a phase of their economy where they're really striving for that competitive advantage. And then you know, you've got the flip side of the coin where for a time in Italy, ChatGPT actually was banned because they found that in their opinion, it didn't meet the standard that it needed to for privacy. It'll be really interesting to see that play out with different settings and different nations and how that impacts their competitiveness and their tech ecosystems as well. Scarlett, how's the Tech Council of Australia embracing the AI conversation? Yeah, we think it's critically important. So we've recently joined the CSIRO's Responsible AI Network. So we've got sort of a, a subcommittee internally that's looking at proposed regulation by government to make sure that we've got a really balanced view and good information feeding in, you know, whether it's cyber or AI, I think it's really important that any proposed regulation, we really see how that's going to apply in reality. So 
you know, something like cyber is probably a great example for this. You know, if we're going to say that software developers are responsible for the cybersecurity outcomes and that they need to implement two-factor authentication, okay, that's something we can say, but then in reality, how does that work when different organizations, you know, have completely different authentication and identity management structures, you know, and they've got different two-factor authentication providers and there's costs associated. What does it actually look like to do it? So we're really embraced that we're having this conversation and so publicly around AI, then we think that should really continue. It's such a pivotal point in the broader conversations around AI. So I'm always interested in, in when you've got organizations like yourself that are, that are embracing it. I think it's, it's an important conversation to have. Absolutely. And, you know, it comes back to what we were talking about earlier in diversity of thought in design of these processes as well. AI is really going to impact and it already has impacted the way decisions are made about people and for people. And you really need to make sure you've got the right voices in the room anytime that you're making a decision for or about somebody. So AI is bringing to the forefront a conversation that maybe we should have been having already, but now there's certainly no room to shy away from it. So I think it's only positive that we're able to talk about this. Is there anything that you would personally do, Scarlett, in the world of AI governance? Is that of interest? AI governance. Big question. You know, we've seen some really good practices that have come out voluntarily from some organizations. So identifying what's a high or a low risk application of an AI system and then sort of treating that accordingly. But I think it's really important that with AI systems, governance is built in as part of the design and build process. As with cyber, it's really, it's not something you can retrofit. You can't retrofit ethics to a decision. So that really needs to be upfront and just even by the amount of discussion that's happening about it, there's not a developer in the whole world that could say, I didn't know I needed to do that. You know, mm-hmm. Everybody knows you need to think about the impact of your decision when it comes to building the AI system. So we're on the way, I think, to finding the right balance. But for me, it would be making sure that robust governance is accessible and it's easy to implement. Love I love it. that statement, can't retrofit ethics to a decision. I appreciate that. Probably sounds good in Latin as a tattoo, Gabe. <laughs> That's a headliner. <laughs> Too good. Hey, Scarlett, that was really insightful. Really appreciate your expert opinion on a lot of these things. Great yes. to have you on, on the Dark Mode podcast and looking forward to catching up again in the future, potentially for a Dragos roundtable next time. Hexagon Absolutely. table. We do things better. <laughs> really, thanks so much for having me on, guys. It's just been great. Thanks, Scarlett. If you enjoyed this episode, Please subscribe to our YouTube channel or leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. See you on the next episode of Dark Mode.